These were my comrades whom I had. There are no better. They remain in my mind, and the enemy will never be forgiven. The enemy was their mistake in playing. Let them play again in some other way, and let them embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 147 of Embrace the Void, where the Supreme Court has gone social justice. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we have part one of a two-part discussion in our Culture War series, so let's get dialoguing. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Reed Nicewonder, president of Street Epistemology International and host of Cordial Curiosity's YouTube channel. Reed, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, the void. Hello, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you here. I appreciate you coming on to chat. Um, I think it's it'll be hopefully a valuable conversation. I think you and I, um, like so many folks who engage in these kinds of chats online, agree on a lot of things and maybe substantially disagree on some things. And so it'll be worth, full, worth splitting those things out um, a little bit. Uh, before we get to discussing street epistemology, do you want to let folks give folks a little sense of who you are, how you identify in ways that are important to you? Uh, if somebody was trying to get to know you quick. Sure thing. I am yeah, president of Street Epistemology International, although I'd like to have you know this just be like me read nice wonders words for this conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel called Cordial Curiosity, which I try to um, employ the method of street epistemology to have conversations with people. I usually go out in public and with a table and, and Dan used to, you know, before the pandemic mm-hmm. and uh, have conversations with people who, anybody who wanted to come to my table to sit down to chat about whatever. Mm-hmm. And I record with their consent. I upload those conversations to my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what are you personally like? Do you have, uh, do you identify strongly with certain views? Are you of an atheist persuasion, of a secular persuasion? Um, where do you sort of fall in the great compass of life? I'd say like secular, liberal, humanism, that type of thing. Uh-huh. I'm not very political. I don't know too much about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, we're trying to shift street epistemology away from like religion topics, pseudoscience topics into more of the religious topics. And that's been a whole journey over the past like year and a half, two years like, wow, I just need to like learn more about politics in general, about different people's perspectives, progressives, conservatives. That's kind of been a project I've been trying to do over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Why are you, why are y'all feeling here? Actually, let's just back up here a little bit. A lot of, a lot of our listeners are already familiar with street epistemology. They'll, um, they asked me about it, uh, regularly. Um, and, but for folks who aren't familiar with it, do you want to give folks just a little bit of a sense of what it is and how it arose? Sure, yeah. It originally came from Peter Pagosian's book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. And then a few years after that book, a guy called Anthony Magnabosco started uploading videos of him trying to practice it out in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And people have been watching his videos the past few years. And we've been prototyping various you know, additional methods that uh, have kind of upgraded it to like an even better, more generalized type of way of having conversation. It's a it's based on the Socratic method, and it focuses on like what people believe, not so much, but why and how, you know, what are their reasons, and then how do they figure out those reasons are reliable. And we just um, try to do that in a nice, friendly, cordial way, and it's been a lot of fun. Interesting. So. It is kind of a Socratic dialogue, like a brand name Socratic dialogue a little bit in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, 
do you feel like there are sort of differences, slight differences in what y'all are doing compared to other folks? So, I mean, from my sense in watching some of your videos, for example, is that y'all seem to very much lean towards the asking questions side of the Socratic dialogue style. Um, do you all ever do you shift gears at any point into making assertions or like presenting thought experiments? Or is it like mostly just sort of follow the formula of ask questions and, and then analyze later? Yeah, we may mainly keep our opinions out of it. Like, it, ideally, after the conversation, they should have no idea what we think about the topic. Oh, I don't. Um, I don't mean insert your own personal opinions. I mean challenge yeah. them in a sort of more robust kind of way. We do challenge their consistency with, mm -hmm. of their reasons for coming to whatever they believe. If they believe with a certain reason A, and but that reason could get to them to like B, C, or D. Then we go into more thought experiments or ways of testing that type of thing, usually with outsider test questions or defeasibility type questions, mm -hmm. but it's mainly still questions. Mm -hmm. But you are attempting mm -hmm. to sort of, do you at some point assert this appears to be an inconsistency in some way? We want to like let them come to that realization uh -huh. um, through the questioning process. Okay. So mm -hmm. what are other kinds of techniques that you feel like you would, you know, you know, people pick up in the street epistemology world that you think are really associated with your particular style of uh, this engagement? Um, we've had a lot of feedback over the years and it seems to be working pretty well. People usually go from like just, you know, hurling f facts out at people, just yelling at people. Um, but when people start getting to SE, they start saying their relationships are much better, you know, by the end of the conversation, the person kind of like is happy to have had the conversation is like thanking them for, you know, going through that process. Mm -hmm. So that type of thing has been really good to see. Mm -hmm. So would you say like, what, what do you see as the main goals of street epistemology? Are you trying to sort of bring about knowledge? Are you trying to persuade people? Are you trying to have a, a cordial interaction that leaves people feeling happy afterwards? I mean, ideally, right. You'd want all three, of course, but um, mm -hmm. do you have a, you have a feeling about which, which of those in the, the uh, true end in itself priority game you would put on, um, put down? True thing. Yeah. I have a, multiple goals. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess personally myself, I went to film school and, um, I would like, I like YouTube as a format in general, but I'm like a very kind of, I was like a very shy, you know, socially anxious person. And I like, I kind of liked, uh, YouTube content around secular activism, but I didn't really know what I could do. Then I saw Anthony's videos and I thought, well, that may be something that I could, you know, try to work up to do. And that's been something I've done since like the summer of 2016. Like I've, like I usually go out once a week for the past like four years, mm -hmm. for like four hours practicing this thing. So that's part of my goals is to practice that, you know, personally trying to help my social skills a little bit mm -hmm. and also, you know, create a YouTube channel. I did that in 2016. Um, that was a cool thing to do, but also mm -hmm. now that I'm in, you know, street epistemology international, I've always wanted to help spread street epistemology in general so now i like i like to model uh street epistemology as a way of having conversations and use youtube and other ways to spread what street epistemology can possibly do for people mm -hmm. um other goals yeah knowledge i do want to help you know help people realize for themselves mm -hmm. they may not have good reasons for certain beliefs i want to know as many true things as possible as few false things so if they believe something for good reasons I could believe it as well. Something mm -hmm. I've never heard of or something I disagreed with at the start of the conversation, but then heard their good reasons and changed my mind. So it's not like I'm out there trying to create atheists, you know, just for that topic. And I'm closed minded. Like I want to be open to whatever I want to model, you know, epistemic virtues. Yeah. I mean, those are generally, I, I'm generally on board with a lot of that. And I, I'm generally pro engagement when it comes to, um, discourse, though, I think maybe I'm. We'll find out. Maybe I'm a little more sympathetic than than some to the limits of that kind of discourse, and both in terms of who might who one should maybe engage with, and uh, the effectiveness of engaging with them potentially. Um, 
I'm curious if this is something that you wrestle with. I know that other folks who I've talked to who engage in this kind of Socratic practices sometimes engage with. Um, I, I want to frame it this way. There was a, a friend of mine, a former guest on the show, who wrote a paper a little while back about different kinds of porn. And one of the kinds of porn that he discussed was civility porn. Uh, we chatted about it on the show and he included it in the paper mm-hmm. some version of civility porn. This idea that like there's this desire people have to watch people debate something very controversial uh in a very civil kind of way um and in a way that like gives the impression that what they're doing is quite brave though in reality that's generally at low risk to the people involved um both in terms of right the consequences of the debate and in terms of how deep they really dive into the hard parts of the debate um and i do i think see a fair bit of civility virtue signaling out there in the world um and i'm i wonder how you would you know if somebody were to say what you doing is effectively a kind of, of civility porn rather than robust discourse how would you push back on that on that claim guilty guilty okay you would say that you would just say that you are indeed civility porn and that's what you're here for i think civil conversation is more you know is more likely to help you and yourself like yourself and the other person reflect on your own beliefs um to get to the truth more efficiently um, Do you think there are cases an, where incivility indiv- is valuable? On an individual basis. Uh-huh. Uh, incivility or, or is sh- fine right. in terms of like ridicule of like some beliefs are ridiculous and can be ridiculed. Although don't, don't ridicule them to the person's face. Just do it, you know, as a third party, like uh-huh. on YouTube video. Um, you don't change someone's mind by insulting them to their face usually. Do you think though so so one one part of the technique that I tend to use involves you know this is something that you see in a lot of folks where they talk about you build up you know rapport with an individual um but at some point you have to spend some of that coin by challenging the person on something and that challenging can feel very uncomfortable and uncivil even if it isn't like insulting or something like that but it 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 feels uncivil because it moves from the kind of um sporty game of back and forth to like this has real consequences and i need you to take this seriously now um do you feel like that that is an important thing that should be included in people's toolkit when they are engaging uh, with folks who they sort of strongly disagree with. Possibly, mm-hmm. I'm looking towards yes, mm-hmm. not exclusively. Possibly, I think you know the more uncomfortable you are, the less likely it is they'll be able to think clearly and then revise their beliefs. Possibly. So that's an. I mean, that's an interesting way to put it. Because when I think, for example, um, when I do Letter from a Birmingham Jail with with MLK, right, his the explicit goal of protest, for example, is to make people feel uncomfortable, is to to heighten, is to take um, conflict that was outside of the consciousness, that was sort of simmering beneath the surface, and make it something that people are more explicitly forced to confront. So that you then force them to the negotiating table or force them to really address the issue rather than sort of pushing it under the rug repeatedly or um, sort of, you know, addressing it in very slow incremental ways. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like you want to evoke like some type of value they have and then Mm -hmm. show how their value and their actions are just inconsistent with their values. You know, if, if you did that where they just have to go privately reflect on that for certain things you know, progress won't be made as as quickly as you can by just doing, going out and protesting, which is a very complex subject. I don't know mm-hmm. what I would think about it. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's tricky, right? There's no silver bullet towards changing people's minds. And I don't suggest that, like, I have a, by, by any means, a perfect solution to the issue any more than uh, anyone else does. It's just interesting to me to notice um, the sort of, nuances of how folks who are all engaging in this predominantly asking questions methods you know where they have slight differences in terms of are they willing to at some point like really turn it you know make this conversation quickly become a confrontation to uh to quote letter kenny right um so all right so you mentioned values there and i'm curious it, it, it sounds like in principle street epistemology doesn't have 
any it isn't attached to any views except maybe the view that like it's it's good to engage in critical thinking for the sake of knowing things um i, I guess i'm curious in practice though do you feel like there is heavy overlap within the street epistemology and certain other worldviews or ideologies? So, for example, is it predominantly a secular community? Um, and do you feel like there are other views that probably are, are in the majority within the SE community? Yeah, I came from, you know, a manual for creating atheists. So I came from the secular community that's like, it's probably 99% atheists or secular people. Okay. Um, I don't know too much about the other political mix of the group of practitioners there's maybe like a dozen or people like publicly going out in recording and uploading stuff on a usually you know consistent basis and then an additional maybe 100 or 200 of people just you know active in the community watching stuff mm-hmm. giving feedback and then maybe like a couple thousand just in general knowing about it kind of poking their head in every once in a while it's not a big movement, but uh, not a, not a big community. And I haven't done any like official polls on mm-hmm. the Facebook group. I you can get a general vibe. Most people are liberal, progressives, secularists, humanists, um, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not sure about the rest of the makeup. Okay, so you you do spend a little bit of time in the Facebook groups then, and have some have some sense of of what the community is like to some extent. Hmm. So this is good because I had some folks who had some questions specifically about those Facebook groups. So, I mean, I just want to say, I'll just, I just want to reiterate and stipulate, right? We're going to, I want to ask you about some anti-social justice warrior views related to a letter wiki that you were engaged in and some other um, ex- discussions that we've had. And mm. uh, I just don't want to, I don't want to make sure people understand I am not in any way saying that street epistemology necessitates an anti-social justice warrior view or vice versa. It seems very clear that everything you're describing up to this point is compatible with a social justice viewpoint just as much as an anti-social justice viewpoint. Um, so that being said, right, as you pointed out, the the group is founded by Peter Boghossian, um, and him and James Lindsay seem to be sort of fairly substantial uh, leaders within this particular community. Um, and this this has led to some concern amongst front, you know folks of my listeners who are generally speaking fans of street epistemology who feel like this is in fact having a kind of um, influence. And I'm curious, first of all, do you feel like there is at least some possibility, some legitimacy to the idea that there is a, a somewhat anti-SJW uh, view that is increasingly prevalent within the street epistemology community. And I'm also curious, are you personally sympathetic to those views? There's different ways of being an anti-SJW, I guess. There's like different perspectives you can come from. There's like the conservative, you know, um, and like all the way to the far right, you know, anti-SJW perspective. And then there's the liberal type of anti-SJW. There's socialist anti-SJWs. Sure. Um, they are hated by many people. I'll f- fully agree. <laughs> and, and depending on what you mean by SJW, like a social justice warrior, what kind of social justice are we talking about? The liberal version or the what now James Lindsay calls like critical social justice, like the what people sometimes call like wokeness or postmodern mm-hmm. neo-Marxism and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people in the SE community in general are anti-SGW, I don't know. Like I, from a liberal perspective and am against the postmodern critical theory version tentatively. And we don't really talk about it too much in general Hmm. in the Facebook groups. Um, We usually keep politics out of it. It's mainly just criticizing SE videos. That's interesting to hear because uh-huh. as one of the longtime listeners who, who talked to me about this a little bit beforehand said that he had basically had to quit all of the groups because the kind of feminism is cancer viewpoint had become, he felt like, very dominant. Is that not something that you've seen at all within those groups? Or uh, what, what, what do you think about that idea of feminism is cancer? Do you feel like that's something that uh, is in line with what you were just describing as your liberal um, anti-woke view? Liberal feminism is not cancer. Critical social justice feminism is not good for the goals of 
equal opportunity for women. I'll just say that clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of feminism as cancer type people in the SE Facebook groups, I think there was like a, a, a ruffle, like maybe a few years back, 2017, maybe where some of that may have gone on and some people may have left the groups because people were not being too nice in the comments. So that's possible. Yeah. That's been a while ago. I just forgot. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And, and so you make the distinction that I've seen these folks making quite a bit between again, um, what you call the liberal version of these things versus the, the critical social justice version. And I fully acknowledge that there are lots of sides of the left. And I think that there can be, uh, individuals who identify as being on the left and who genuinely are on the left. They're not crypto conservatives who also have issues with wokeness, um, or things like that. I'm mostly just trying to get like a a baseline sense of, um, you know, your perspective on these things. And then I want to dive into some of the specifics like you were talking about with sort of different versions of um, equity. Um, So let's see, I wanted to ask, so um, in the letter, right, Ross, the the person you're interacting with, and unfortunately, we haven't gotten a response back from him. I'm waiting with bated breath to see what that response is going to be like, um, because you did give him... Right. I thought you gave him at least, you know, a substantive response. Um, and so he, he raises in there concerns about um, sort of Peter and James's uh, involvement, um, their behavior insofar as how it seems to uh, not, in fact, uphold the sort of basic SE principles um, that we've been talking about here. Um, and also, right, legitimate concerns, I think, about an event that I think you actually also attended. And I was curious to ask you a little bit about the, the Speaking Truth to Social Justice uh, event hosted by a group called Sovereign Nations, um, which are, as far as I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, they are a Christian nationalist organization. Um, he so and he also argued in these in these letters that this continued kind of uncritical support of the material by folks in SE sort of gives what seems to be a tacit approval of that work sort of to the organization more broadly. Um, and I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about sort of what your feeling is on those issues at this point um, while we're while we're awaiting Ross's response. Yeah, if I could try to summarize Ross's concern, I think you did as well. You know, he's worried about the association of SE with Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay, and they associate with, you know, this Christian nationalist group, and they're in just in general, you know, anti-SJW, you know, they did the grievance studies affair, they did a bunch of things that are very critical of a certain version of, of social justice. And if people are for social justice, and they're against it, that could be a bad thing for SE in general, and then mm-hmm. you know the people practicing SE. So that seems plausible. It's just in detail. If you go into the you know in context, they're mm-hmm. not against liberal social justice. They're against a certain version of critical social justice, and their mm-hmm. association with you know a Christian nationalist group is because they share a liberal, you know methodology at least in terms of you know politics you know a little bit do you, you know, genuinely they, think that they serve the same the similar um like goals as the the sovereign nations who, if, who as far as i can tell are sympathetic to reinstalling theocratic kinds of principles would you say sovereign nations wants the u.s to be a theocratic nation like a like a theocracy well it's complicated uh i've been trying to research this a bunch i was hoping to have their leader on the show i haven't been able to get any responses from them on that front unfortunately um but from from what i can tell so far um they do seem to for example think that in order to be a conservative you have to be a christian and in order to be a christian you have to be a conservative and that that plays out in the form of, you know, needing to make sure that Christian theology is influencing the laws, essentially. Um, you know, we could haggle over whether that's technically definitional theocracy versus, you know, like this, you know, the the church is fully controlling it or something like that. But I think in terms of the kind of concerns that modern atheists raise, what we're worried about is the way that people keep slipping Christian laws into the books in this kind of way. Yeah, so there's definitely some concerns there, mm-hmm. if that is true. Although, you know, P- 
Pierre Bogosian teaches ethics, I think, at a Portland State University. Mm-hmm. And he brings in like everybody who he, he can to like, you know, to give their own opinion about certain various things. I think he brings in like the VeggieTales guy. He brings in, you know, other, you know, hardcore people with different beliefs. I think he brought in a flat earther type Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he, I'm sure he could bring in a Christian nationalist just as easily. So he's not, you know, mm-hmm. not afraid of associating himself with these people. Yeah, but I think there's a bit of a difference, though, here between what we're describing, right? Like what you're describing is in a controlled educational environment, bringing in people who have differing views and discussing how those views conflict. What I'm describing is collaborating extensively, it seems like, with uh, an organization that is explicitly illiberal in its views in a, in a project of criticizing other people for being illiberal, but with almost no feedback or, or criticism that I can tell towards the sovereign nations group for being, you know, an anti-gay, pro-life, um, uh, anti-immigrant, um, pro-globalist conspiracies kind of group. And so it, it feels to me that, like, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm willing to engage with anyone as long as I get the chance to debate them, too. Like, as long as, you know, as part of my engagement with this group, I can say to this group, and by the way, I also firmly believe that you're wrong. I just agree with you that this other group is wrong, right? And it yeah. feels like I don't see any of that in their engagement with conservative organizations. Yeah, I remember... You know, it was in London at the very nice, you know, Gladstone Library, and then there was a nice hotel nearby. Mm-hmm. And it was just a one-day conference, like a few hours. But we were there for like a few days, and Michael Michael O'Fallon was there. And like the, on the day of, there was maybe less than maybe fifty people, fifty to sixty, seventy people. Mm-hmm. And the makeup of the day was mostly. Um, some conservatives, some, um, some like explicitly atheists, you know, secular liberals. Mm-hmm. I was there. Anthony Magnabosco was there, um, and a few other people from England. I think Andrew Doyle was there. You know, the guy who wrote, you know, um, woke a guide to social justice that parody book. Mm-hmm. He was there. The trigonometry guys were there. So these were like, you know, and they're pretty you know, centrist, liberal, some little bit of conservative. The makeup was not majority Christians. It was mainly like center, center left, center right people. People, people uh, unified around the anti-social justice axis, yeah. right? But from differing, what they would say are differing political axes, potentially. I'm yeah, curious, but, actually, since you're, since you're, I'm, I mean, this is really useful for me, actually, because I really did want to learn more about this group and learn more about like this, you know, from the, all I have of the convention essentially is Godless Spellchecker doing a live tweet of it. Um, yeah, it so there, like, yeah. you know, I'm curious, for example, what were the demographics as well within the group? Um, was it like, for example, predominantly white? Was it entirely white? Were there, was it a, was it a mix? Do you feel like? Probably ninety percent white, eighty uh-huh. percent male. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just curious. Um, so we we jumped, we jumped ahead a little bit here. I actually, was wanted to ask you a little bit more about stuff from the letter and things as well before we, um, because like I think there are two concern. There are multiple concerns here, right? One is these individuals who are sort of flagship personas, brands for this particular group are. Uh, you know, engaging with individuals who may also be, and I know that people hate this word, but I used to use this word long before it became problematic, but right, <laughs> who are problematic, right? Okay. Yeah. There used to be my nice ethics person word for saying you're doing something immoral, but I don't want to make you really mad yet. And now mm-hmm. we've, I have to hedge even farther. Um, but right, when I was asking you about this stuff, right, I, I brought up to you, um, you, you brought up in the letter Peter's book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, as a sort of example of good street epistemology kind of training. And then I, I asked you about a Wall Street Journal op-ed that the two of them had wrote, very 
concurrently with the publishing of that book entitled Social Justice Warriors Won't Listen, But You Should. Um, and this struck me like as, as a pretty harmful Wall Street Journal article op-ed for the discourse, right? That like, here's the opening line. He said, they say, um, it would be charming for advocates of social justice ideology to say, we need to have a conversation. Were they not almost uniformly dreadful conversationalists? Um, now, mm-hmm. when I when I presented this to you, your your response was initially, at least, it seemed like that you generally agreed with the thrust of the paper. Um, can you? But you also, at the same time, acknowledge that like that kind of way of engaging is maybe not the best from a social epistemology perspective. So, I mean, I'm curious. Do you feel like this is still? you know, modeling good street epistemology behavior? And if not, what is it within the article, I guess, that you want to expand on that you did sort of feel like you were more in agreement with? Yeah, that was last year, I think, that that article. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 2019. And they've been critical of social justice, I think, at least since 2015, 2014, 2015, it didn't start out this way. They they did want to start, you know, having conversations. They did want to politely ask, what do you mean by equity, diversity, and inclusion, these types of things? And they did, at least Peter tried to do this, you know, with his usual style of, you know, polite conversation, just asking questions mainly. And he got consistently rebuffed and called names and, you know, the, those types of things. So then, and then it's just been, you know, after a while, then he tried to like, Okay, now if if they're not going to listen or if they're not going to talk to me, I'll do like a, a you know a satirical hoax, you know, try to expose you know, these ideas, and then they got really mad at Peter, and then there's like no chance he's going to talk to anybody probably. <laughs> so now he's just um, you know he's he's probably not going to be able to have a nice conversation with most people around these ideas. So then he's just now he's just a, you know a hard critic of these things. But other people may have the opportunity to have conversations with people who believe these types of things. But he's saying, if you do that, you will most likely just be called names as well. So, but you should still listen to them. You know, mm-hmm. try to use you know his methods and how to have impossible conversations. Like, there's a whole section in the book of like, you know, talking to a dialogue. Just listen, listen, and listen more and listen. But, um. For them, he's not going to be able to, you know, you, you can't have a conversation with someone who does not want to have a conversation. Even, you know, that still is not a, an impossible conversation. That's just like not even on the table. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, so it sounds like like you're characterizing him as someone who has experienced substantial grievance as a result of his engagement with other people and has become, Mm -hmm. it sounds like somewhat radicalized in the way that he is willing to engage or thinks about this particular issue. Um, Do you think that's, that's a fair characterization of where he's at at this point? Yeah. He probably suffered like trauma at this point. (laughs) Maybe. And I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to downplay that. I do think that psychological trauma is important, and I do think that people get traumatized on the internet by, you know, the way that people engage with them, the way that people criticize them. That even even those of us who are, you know, hardwired for take, you know, resisting it, eventually, I think it it does cause various kinds of burnout, and maybe that's part of the explanation for why it seems like James Lindsay's also being radicalized on Twitter um, in his uh, ability to engage with folks or lack thereof um so i am not i'm not unsympathetic to that um it just it just seems like it, it seems like a big problem if their main view is the people that they are disagreeing with are the radicals who, who are refusing to engage and are you know obsessed with grievances right it becomes very hard i feel like for those of us uh who don't necessarily strongly identify with either view i'm more sympathetic to the social justice view but i'm not a critical theorist i'm just a boring analytic ethicist um it, it makes it very hard, I feel like, from the outside to tell what is actually going on here, how much of this is legitimate and how much of this is, you know, these people got, you know, called Nazi on the Internet one too many times. And so now they think that social justice is collapsing Western civilization. So what were the other claims in the article? Um, like, oh, within the within the Wall Street Journal article? 
I think I yeah. pulled up another one up that I saved, actually. I had to sneak around there. Stupid paywall. Um, yeah, paywall. Okay, here we go. Right, when they tell you that science is merely one way of knowing among many and that it's used to uphold dominance and oppression, believe them. Do you think that science is ever used to uphold dominance and oppression? Mm-hmm. Okay. So is it weird to suggest that like there's some there's nothing to that the way they seem to be suggesting that in the article that like these are you know the ravings of a mad person but you should at least listen to them because they take it seriously Mm. i was just thinking of science as a dominance and an oppression thing before i think it dom you know a lot of their ideas come from this book kind of the inquisitors and it talks about liberal science as like the kind of the the game liberal societies are playing in terms of knowledge production mm-hmm. and liberal science is oppressive um by design it does marginalize that is a feature of it not a bug you know we can't have all ideas on the table equally hmm. some have to be criticized so it does marginalize things deliberately um, and that can harm and that can cause people to suffer, mm-hmm. especially people from marginalized backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Their ideas may, you know, they may have been historically marginalized as people and then their ideas may not, uh, may not be getting a fair shake in terms of scientific enterprise. So that's just something you got to be on the lookout for. But what would you, what was the other question? Well, so, I mean, that sounds like, you know, what a lot of us on the social justice leaning side of things sort of think about this, right? I, I mean, there you can you can find views if you dig deep into postmodernism, you can find certainly views that say that like maybe there's no objective truth. But right, a lot of folks will just talk about how we have difficulties with getting access to the objective truth and that, you know, um science is a method for achieving that and it's amongst the better methods but it is potentially still a flawed method and faces a variety of uh, problems and is limited by our culture in these kinds of ways Um, and that seems like a very reasonable point to me Um, and I just have a trouble then squaring it with where like for example you said uh, in your response in the letter that you think that social justice capital S capital J is Mm -hmm. hostile to humanism and reason right there's there's it seems like there's a bit of a like a Mott and Bailey here thing where like are we just saying you know the sjws are a little too worried about uh you know the influence of society within science in which case we kind of agree with them but maybe they take it a little too far sometimes and we should rein that in a little bit but it's a reasonable idea or are we saying that these folks think that science is an abomination and should be burned to the ground right which is a way that i see them sometimes talking way you say james characterizing some social justice people as yeah. saying those type of things yeah yeah, there's definitely a Martin Bailey thing going on where I think they're trying to clarify the Martin Bailey game being played by some critical social justice activists. Like they have the Mott, you know, the reasonable, and then the the Bailey, the in you know, undefensible, the more radical, revolutionary type of ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and you could say Jim on Twitter, like the past few days, being very worried about the bailey version of these ideas coming about because of the mott language and ideas being proposed you know recently that's what he's worried about i think this is an interesting point right because i feel like i see them engaging in this kind of mott and bailey they feel like they see social justice warriors and engaging in this kind of mott and bailey and something that i talk about when i do fallacies in class is good arguments look very similar to bad arguments and vice versa sometimes like um what could be a legitimate argument can look like a fallacy um and and they often sort of look very similar they track each other like um you know like the way that things uh, mimic each other in nature so they can slip in um and and that one major concern I see with Mott and Bailey is if I accuse you of a Mott and Bailey, right, what I may be doing actually is myself engaging in a kind of sophisticated straw manning, right, where I try to say, 
you were not adopting view uh, this strong view X earlier. You were adopting a weaker view, and now you've run from that view. And I'm I'm challenging you to come out and defend your original view, and thereby kind of force you to try to defend a weaker version of your own view. Um, and I guess I wonder how are we supposed to figure out right if. Like it, what, what, what it seems to me is these folks are engaging in deeply uncharitable readings to try to drive people from plausible positions to things that they are more functionally able to criticize. Um, and I just wonder how you think we can tell one way or the other uh, what's going on here. It's hard. Like there's so many people on Twitter promoting social justice ideas. Are they, you know, the hardcore critical social justice, you know, all into it with the postmodernism and the critical theory together. Hard to say. I think most people are just normal liberal type, you know, people and they want to be good people. They want to, you know, continue the good works of the civil rights movement. And they see these as just the next version of the civil rights, um, these types of things, and they want to help. Um, I think they possibly could be using ideas they don't possibly know where they came from and what that could possibly lead to so it's hard to say um for i don't know mm-hmm. like how i would just have a conversation with people what do they mean by equity and inclusion and diversity and most people will say it's like you know, ac- you know inclusion is just we want to welcome people equity we want you know equal opportunity um diversity we want to have you know a diverse you know population of people you know people from all skin colors, all, you know, all cultures, everyone's welcome. You know, let's, let's mm-hmm. keep, keep broadening the, the opportunity, these types of things. So, so yeah, this is, this is that going with that. This is really valuable because actually I was just going to think we should talk in about detail some and equity was the first on my list of things I wanted to discuss with you. Um, but before I, mm-hmm. before we dive into this, let me just ask you real quick, because it does seem like you would say you lean towards being sympathetic to James and Peter's positions on this, it seems like, from what I can gather from your social media, the way you interact on these issues, um, the, what you're saying in the letter wiki. And I'm curious what your level of confidence is, because I know that's something that you all think mm-hmm. about in your own method. Um, what would you say is your level of confidence on this particular issue? Like 99% confident this version of critical social justice exists. It is a thing. How confident am I that everyone who puts forth social justice values believes in this specific version? I don't know. It's hard to say. I would say it's a fringe minority. Like the true believers in it and who really know the history and they want to get to certain radical revolutionary policies. That's a fringe minority. Um, Maybe 90% confident about that. And then there's like just the people who want to help and be good people and are just vaguely familiar with these ideas like white fragility, equity. That's probably another 50% of people. Would you um, say that James, I mean, like, I know you don't want to speak, I, don't, I hate asking you to speak for them, but like my impression is they think that it's the, the second one you did there, right? The it's a fringe minority position. They seem to suggest that it's not, that it's running rampant across society, it seems like. Do you disagree with them on that? I think the people who actually believe it and know about it are all pretty much academics. And some people in the media and like in journalism, maybe they believe it a little bit. Still, that's not many people. It's just those ideas have been kind of leaked into the general culture and people want to be good people and use these ideas to be good people and then most people don't know where they're coming from so they i think they would say it's been institutionalized with people who have great good intentions they just it's like a he's saying you know these are it's a trojan horse he's saying you know yeah that type of thing Right, which is the name of his video with the Sovereign Nations folks. The name of their video with them talking about yeah, these issues. they're like three episode series. Yes, and um, I, I want to dive into my concerns about how what you just said is eerily similar to the kind of anti-globalist conspiracies that I'm deeply 
concerned about a lot of the time. But I, I, I think we should really talk about equity first. Um, and then maybe if we manage to make it into a part two here, we can talk about those conspiracy theories a little bit more. Um, but you, you brought up equity, and I really think this is important to like drill down on some specifics here, right? So this has become a major stalking horse with these folks. Um, and as you have sort of pointed out, right, a common complaint is that what normal people hear when they hear the word equity is not what these critical theorists mean when they say the word equity or what these social justice warriors mean when they say the word equity. So I'm curious, first of all, could you give me what you think the social justice warriors definition is of equity? What do they mean when they say equity? Um, And why does it deviate from what seems like what you think I think is a kind of good version of equity, right? I assume that you're in favor of some versions of equity, just not theirs, as has been the theme here. Sure. And you've, you've heard of Jim's website, New mm-hmm. Discourses, and he has like a translation from the woke, uh, wokeness or something. Yeah. What do you uh, think about that dictionary as being, uh, I mean, this is again, like this gets back to the questions of street epistemology, where like, is that, is it useful to create a dictionary that feels fairly one-sided in this kind of way? Um, I think it's useful to have the Mott and Bailey versions distinguished. Okay. Or, or the liberal. He, he's, he has a bias. He is sure. a liberal and he sees the social justice language and usages in these terms um, as in, explicitly anti liberal. And he, he seems mm-hmm. to be pretty persuasive in that because he just quotes them from their resources and gives their sources. Okay. So do you want to, do you want to give a, a, a source uh, from that there or something, I guess. Yeah. Uh, here's the page from equity and it's very, it's like a one paragraph thing. Mm-hmm. Um, want me to just read that? Sure. The equity, the notion of being fair and impartial is an individual as an individual engages with an organization or system, particular, particularly systems of grievance. It reflects processes and practices that both acknowledge that we live in a world where everyone has not been afforded the same resources and treatment while also working to remedy this fact. Equity is often conflated with the term equality, which means sameness and assumes incorrectly that we all have had equal access, treatment, and outcomes. In fact, true equity implies that an individual may need to experience or receive something different, not equal, in order to maintain fairness and access. For example, a person with a wheelchair may need differential access to an elevator relative to someone else. Mm-hmm. equity so is that the is that the good definition or the social justice definition that's the social justice uh definition interesting because when i hear that i hear a basic straight up liberal definition of equity so i'm curious what you feel like is bad in that definition what's the problem there where did i miss the 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 the, the harm getting in yeah he goes on to say you know they make it makes pains to Distinguish equity from equality. Mm-hmm. I fully agree. Um, it's different from equality in the sense of, every, you know, like, you know, like let's let's use uh, income tax for example, right? Flat tax mm-hmm. versus progressive income tax, right? A progressive income tax is equitable, whereas a flat tax is equal. So, I, I totally agree. Those things are different, and I think it's valuable that we we move towards understanding. Uh, towards caring about equity. And I think the the central point of John Rawls's liberty theory is justice, for example, of fairness, justice is fairness, for example, is about how we need to include more equity in our society. So, um, so, so yeah, I'm here. I'm curious to hear what the, what the problem is with this definition. I think, you know, we're going into the, like the Bailey more version of it. And I think his commentary says that, you know, when we get to equality of outcome, that type of thing, like with any type of disparity in society in terms of like wealth or in positions of prestige and power in society, like politicians or professors, that type of thing. Then there's like policies of trying to remedy the get, you know, get more equality of outcome, more equity, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. And then, and then the methods for that are using, um, you know, trying to figure out who is most historically marginalized, like trying to figure out who is the most oppressed using intersectionality mm-hmm. um, and that type of thing. Okay. So, so there's yeah. a couple of things in there, it seems, right? Now, we want to separate those out, right, and slow down here a little bit, I think, because so you've got in there equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, right? I fully agree that 
uh, part of equity is about bringing about more equality of outcome, though we can talk in a second about whether it's absolute equality of outcome, which I think is not the view that most people are trying to achieve. Um, but then, right, you have the separate and I think legitimately harder problem of how do you distinguish when disparate outcomes are the result of injustice and so need to be addressed in a uh, addressed through the use of some kind of equitability system. Um, and there, right, I think a lot of the conflict, a lot of the problem seems to be around how much can we make reference to disparate outcomes? How do we distinguish between good, you know, like fair and unfair disparate outcomes, essentially? And there is sometimes, I think, a view you know, this is a view that I think social justice warriors are accused of, and I think some of them don't do a good enough job avoiding talking in this way. But it's this idea that any disparity in outcomes is necessarily proof of injustice, which I don't think is a, a mainstream view, and I don't think is a true view. Um, and I think, you know, if we want to give a generous reading of the critical justice view, right, if we're trying to move towards a synthesis of these of these views, um, it might be helpful to sort of drop the idea that um, all forms of, um, you know, all forms of differences of outcome are necessarily bad things, right? So, so I mean, let me ask you a couple of questions here just to flesh out how you see things, because I think the part of the, well, another part of the big disagreement here is there's debate over how close we actually are to equality of opportunity. I think a lot of times when folks say, I'm in favor of equality of opportunity, but not equality of outcome, they also generally think for the most part, we are pretty much there or getting close at least to equality of opportunity. I think that's the way, that's the way I see it conveyed. Maybe that's mostly in conservative circles. Maybe that's not true of um, liberals. So I'm curious, do you think that we are relatively close to um, equality of opportunity? And if we're not, do you think that that part of the gap is being caused by things like racism and sexism and various forms of systemic inequality? Yeah, I don't, it's hard to say. I think perfect equality of opportunity, we would have to have a society of like clones that yeah. just all of them all of them were born and then they all die at the same time. And then there's a new generation of clones with the exact same genes and wealth. And they're just, you just let this thing go over <laughs> and over every time. Like that would be perfect for equality of opportunity. And I'm sure by the end of the hundred years, there would be differences in outcome with the clones, but, but we live in a very messy society with a lot of historical problems for people. Mm -hmm. And, I have no idea how much equality of opportunity, like how would we measure that? <laughs> you know, there's, there's wealth, there's class, mm -hmm. there's the ability, there's like ability to get into colleges. There's the, you know, childhood care, child care. You know, there's so much, so many factors you could use. Um, I have no idea. Okay. So at least you would say we don't appear to be having a quality of outcome or a quality of opportunity right now, right? We, we can debate how far away from it we are, but it seems like, you know, like you said, it would, it would be extreme to get there in a science fiction-y level. And then like even in our normal society, it would be things like what? Getting rid of inheritance in some kind of way, right? Because inheriting large amounts of money is never going to be, right, an equitable distribution of that income. Um, so... So you do see that there are some inequalities of opportunity. And I'm curious, what about the question, do you see that some of them are the results of race, gender, sexuality, other kinds of, um, you know, other things that are studied by the grievance studies? Uh, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, so you do think that there are those things, right? Do you feel like they are overstated? I mean, like, what is the, I'm trying to understand, I guess, a little bit what the, what, what, what is behind your credence that this is a misguided view? Like the definition of equity, it seemed like you gave there was fairly benign. And uh, it seems like you agree that they're like, so one of the major complaints I think people have about even the phrase grievance studies is that gr the word grievance gives the impression that the problem isn't as bad as the person says it is, I think, right? Where it's not not a legitimate grievance, it feels like is in some ways, especially when they when they then go on to say, and there are not a bunch of, you know, that a bunch of these grievances aren't legitimate or that racism isn't that bad or things like that. So 
you know, I guess I'm trying to understand what is the what is the problem with these views if what they want to say is there are these issues, they have persisted in various systemic ways and we're and we're doing our best to try to analyze them and assess them. Yeah, I want to take like Google as an example. Mm-hmm. Should Google have fifty percent men and women? Maybe. Um You mean the you mean the company? Yeah, the company. Not the search engine. <laughs> Not, not the search engine. No. Well, I ask because when you were talking with James, you actually threw up a quote at one point, I think, or in one of the videos, threw up a quote about from Douglas Murray talking about on the search engine. He kind of claimed that the search engines are being messed with to screw with Western civilization or something like that. By you know, if you type in a white couple or something like that, you get interracial couples. Um, do you do you yeah, believe that's that true? Not- I don't know. It seems people have like tried to replicate what Douglas Murray says happens, and they some people say it happens, some people don't say it happens. I don't know, but like, why, the, why do you think I that think people are getting different result, different results there? I mean, I think there's an answer for this question. Um, probably just their algorithms are set to differently. Right, people have different like algorithms because like this is what i mean like it it seems to me on its face the idea that google that anybody at google right would care about anything other than making a lot of money and would in some way be like fiddling with their algorithm just to like stick it to you know white dudes or something like that 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 seems to me very much just like an out there conspiracy theory um but i feel like when you start to get into this anti-woke mindset you start to like seriously consider that like because James Damore was fired a bunch of years ago, somebody at Google is fiddling with their algorithm. Yeah, like the most extreme claim is there's a bunch of SGWs in Google and they want to use machine learning fairness to make sure bigots searching for plausibly bigoted search things don't see what they're searching for just to stick it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's happening. I think there are progressives in Google who would like to have society be more fair. Mm-hmm. So they possibly using some type of machine learning fairness um, to reduce, you know, it looking completely white or, mm-hmm. you know, completely historically, um, you know, 1950s version of reality. They want to help, you know, make the world look more progressive, more mm-hmm. diverse. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's ranges of claims in their plausibility, and it's hard to say if any of them are true. Well, this is this is very interesting to me because I do AI ethics, and there's a great book called Weapons of Math Destruction, which mm-hmm. is actually I mean, have you read it? I've heard of it. Okay, it's a book about how algorithms, in various ways, sort of launder uh, traditional inequality into a you know safer feeling, objective, quantified format that alleviates people of responsibility while still continuing to promote various kinds of um, injustice. And so, you know, for example, if you pull out your phone and you type in, you know, uh, I talked to the doctor right it's predictive text the next thing is going to be he because not not because you know the patriarchy does the creed that it should you know choose that word next but because we as a society traditionally have a lot more male doctors than female doctors and the learning algorithm learns that right and it learns how to you know predict what the likely outcome is there but it can then have sort of reinforcing effects on people's behavior in all sorts of weird ways that's a sort of minor example but of course there are sort of far more scaled up examples with concerns about algorithms and hiring um, and things like that so, I mean, I'm curious, do you really f- do you feel like uh, that kind of AI world is is actually causing more harm or in, in many ways is a big problem for social justice in a way that if it was, you know, if it was true that these com- tech companies were dominated by social justice warriors that like you think they would address these problems a little more effectively, right? Yeah, if like we had completely neutral algorithms, they would probably reveal the biases in society effectively so if you want to reduce that bias culturally google may have wanted to do that they i think they may try to do that Mm -hmm. um because it seems like a good thing to possibly do so maybe not true yeah, there are um, attempts by like the hiring companies to try to 
uh, weed out the parts of their algorithm that, it, that implicitly bias them towards, as effectively towards uh, certain groups or against uh, certain groups, and they can do so. And the problem is the algorithms can learn this stuff. As one of my friends likes to say, from the algorithm's perspective, human beings are really racist and sexist, and their job is to make us more effective racist, sexist people, right? So, like, they don't know any better. Um, but, like, these critiques, these to me are fundamentally, like, social justice, critical theory kinds of critiques. They're attempts to point out that, you know, systemic racism that existed in the criminal justice system, for example, is being further reinforced by um, various kinds of algorithms that are being used in those systems that have been trained on historically biased, racially tainted data. Um, And so I'm curious, do you think that those kind of critiques are valuable? And would you be willing to suggest, would you be willing to consider maybe that like those are good examples of critical theory and that really the problem isn't critical theory overall, it's just certain you know, a fringe of a fringe in a sense, rather than like this entire theory writ large is bad. Yeah. It's like, why do we need to use critical theory when liberal methods can do the work, do the, do the job just as easily. And if critical theory is what is, you know, is actually a thing as described by James is like not so much concerned with, you know, reality is just trying to problematize whatever, um, it's hard to say like i'd like to just use the liberal methods that seem to have been working pretty well what do you mean Um, by the liberal methods here because i'm not to me liberalism is we allow people to engage in any behaviors that don't directly harm others um that's the sort of classic john stuart mill liberal position I'm, i'm not i'm not clear on how that model would address the way that systemic inequality is being transitioned from you know uh analog to digital essentially it's uh sorry my mom's in the back uh i think the liberal methods come from like the liberal science methods from kind of the inquisitors where you can use um just public criticism to say we won't have a goal we want society to be more fair these algorithms seem to be perpetuating stereotypes that we'd like to not be perpetuated therefore fix the algorithms um reason evidence there you go what if our evidence though is that the algorithms are continuing to make for inequitable what would seem to be unequal outcomes right if like before algorithm people of color disproportionately put in prison after algorithm disproportionately numbers people are put in prison wouldn't someone like james say well how do we know that that's not just the fact of the reality that like the algorithm is actually correct and that like black people just do more crime or something like that i was distracted can you ask that a question again yeah so i'm just like when we when we make the claim the algorithm is still biased, what we are effectively saying is there was an unjust distribution of outcomes beforehand, and there continues to be an unjust distribution of outcomes. Um, but as you've raised some concern that like merely pointing to different distributions doesn't prove there's an un- injustice there. Um, what would lead us to then on the on the view that it seems like you're defending what would lead us to say that there's any problem after the algorithm has been implemented that like how do we know that there's a problem with the algorithm what i'm saying what i'm hearing you say is critical theory would be the way to diagnose this problem more more effectively because of the disparate outcomes i'm not sure where i'm here well yeah sure so what i would saying. what i would say is that the theory would be better at pointing us towards hypotheses and then I think part of the problem is going to be that part of the way we assess those hypotheses is going to be in the form of um, this outcome appears to be you know unequal and here's a bunch of reasons for thinking why that inequality is the result of race or gender or something like that and the problem is it's going to be an inductive process so we can never say for certain that those things are the actual causes but like in theory, so here, here again is another problem, right? The work that gets done in trying to make the case empirically that like there is a problem here, it often then gets undercut because people claim that 
the social sciences aren't serious science and the data that they're putting out about these issues isn't accurate and we shouldn't rely on it. And it's part of the agenda, right? The big problem is that a lot of folks will say that the folks putting out that data are part of the conspiracy to promote social justice. Mm-hmm, yeah, that's a common conservative critique I hear. Like, just all of social science is left wing bias, just not science. It's something to be ignored. But I mean, it's not just the conservatives on that one, right? It feels like the intellectual dark web, the reactionary centrists, right? The the classical liberals, whatever we would like to call that other group, has also generally sort of argued that like these departments should be shut down wholesale, right? When when COVID hit and someone tweeted that like their African studies department was going to face serious cutbacks, right? James's response was this is one of the best things to ever happen to uh, academia, right? Like they generally think that it's not a few bad apples in these departments. They feel like the study itself is fundamentally corrupted, which seems like a much stronger claim. Yeah, I think he's, he does not like the critical theory methods. He doesn't see them as scientific. And if they're not scientific, if they're not going by the rules of liberal science, then that's fine to defund them because they liberal science is margin. It does marginalize. It does create barriers. If you're not following the rules, you're, mm-hmm. you're not you're not doing science, so you have no place in academia. I think that's what they would say. So do you think personally that the data that people amass that suggests that the criminal justice system in America is unjust on racial grounds uh, is legitimate scientific data or is it pseudoscience? If they're using critical methods, then it, I don't know. Um, it would have. I would need to know if they're doing rigorous methods and if they're allowing criticism and not just calling people who criticize them racists. So I think we want to be careful there, right? Because you don't want to mm-hmm. assume that critical methods are not rigorous methods, right? I understand that that's part of the argument that's that's been suggested here. But right, if if critical theory, it seems like, could include positive behavior as well as the things that these folks are critical of, then it seems like amongst the things that could include are rigorous versions of critical theory, right? Possible, yeah. Okay. Actually, I realize we're running really short on time here. Do you want to um, maybe take a pause and uh, are you able to continue a little further? Yeah, I'm free. Okay. Free time, anytime. Great. So we'll take a little part one break here and we'll be back for a part two. Before we do that, while folks are waiting for the part two, do you want to let folks know where they can go find your stuff? Um, Sure. Yeah, just search Cordial Curiosity and you'll, I think you'll have fair Google algorithms to find me on YouTube or Twitter (laughs) or Facebook. (laughs) Actually, the the YouTube algorithms support you because you're part of the the road to the on-roading towards the alt-right, right? I don't know if you've that's a joke about data what? recently. <laughs> Sorry. There's there's data. There's a, One of the algorithm problems is that these systems, some have argued, go from less radical videos to more radical videos. And that's part of the way the radicalization process happens. I've heard about that. But yeah. yeah. Maybe that's something else we can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I really do appreciate you chatting. Um, and I will uh, we'll be back again shortly. <laughs> Thanks. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Um, And I'd like to thank some new patrons. Thanks to Aripsa and the testimony of Mushroom. Um, As always, of course, I want to thank our top patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com and Chad T. And of course, all the love and thanks to our top tier $40 lifetime support patrons, Dave Maslich and the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. Thank you all so much for making all of this possible. I really hope you're enjoying uh, the content that is coming about as a result of your donations. Um, I'd also like to say, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. Uh, And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. We'll be starting a new book soon, so join in. Um, Most importantly, remember, you are the void. And the void is you. Mm-hmm.